Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand, we'll begin in prayer. For blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages, amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, those who trespass against us into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Excuse me while I figure out. There we go. I hope that does it. Thank you for coming out in this cold weather, and uh, I know there were a lot of other things going on tonight around the diocese and in Washington, D.C. in preparation for the March for Life, so I appreciate <coughs> excuse me, your attendance here at the Institute, and thank you for your prayers. I'm doing much better than I was last week, even though I have a cough that sounds like I have tuberculosis, and all I can say is God always gives tuberculosis to the saints. Uh, we're going to begin just with a, a scriptural verse tonight. If you have your Bibles, how many of you brought your Bibles with you this evening? Good, good. Well, God bless you. Open them up to the book of Deuteronomy. And I hope you're planning on going to the march tomorrow. If you're not, change your plans. Uh, it's too cold. No, it's not. You're too old. No, you're not. What better place to die than on the march for life? The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 15, one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. I think you'll see why I am quoting it this evening. See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land which you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess." I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Please join me in welcoming back our wonderful Deacon Keith Fournier.
How are you? Thank you all. Great to be with you again. It was my dear brother Deacon Sabatino, the founding executive director of this wonderful work, who labeled this three-part series on Catholics and political participation, Catholic politics. Well, no, principles of Catholic politics. That's a little bit better, because that's what we've been talking about, the principles that the scripture and the teaching office of the church offer to us to work into the political structure that we are called to transform from within. But when I first heard him call it Catholic politics, I thought, you know, isn't that an oxymoron? Can there really be such a thing? And I hope after listening to me for the last two talks, and perhaps after tonight, you know the answer I give to that. It's not an oxymoron. In fact, Catholics are not only called into the political system, but we are the ones who may actually be capable of helping to transform it. If we take our faith seriously, if we understand what we're doing there. In fact, the corruption that we currently face in the political system makes it all the more urgent because we, like the Lord whom we serve, love all men and women. And we do not want to see them suffer from that corruption. In addition, I think from my talks you know that I've tried to set this in the context of our 2,000-year history. I've heard year after year after year how difficult a time we live in. This is one of the worst times we've ever faced as a church. This is the darkest time. And anyone who has a background in church history knows that's not the case. In a certain sense, we grew up in weather like this. This is the kind of cultural climate that the early church was launched into. This is why we're here. You know, when I was a very young man, <clears throat> I went to my first ecumenical conference, a conference of different Christian groups, was sponsored by uh, one of the ecclesial movements. Um, but I, I was fresh out of Boston, and frankly, I had never met a Southern Baptist preacher from Alabama. Boy, what an accent he had. He thought I had one, too. Wonderful man. And he told a story. He was very good at telling stories, and it just comes back to my mind, about two guys who were climbing up a mountain in a terrible storm. And one fellow was taken with how severe the storm was the whole way up the mountain. And this guy could really spin a good yarn. I can't do it as well as he did, and it was a lot of years ago. But at various stages, as they're walking up the mountain, the rains start coming in torrents. And this fellow, concerned about the weather, turns to his colleague and says, this rain is unbelievable. And the other guy says, nothing. And then the winds come, and they're being blown back and forth, and trees are falling. And the guy says, this wind is unbelievable. We're not going to make it. And the other guy says, nothing. So it goes on and on and on. Finally, they get to the top, and he looks at the fellow mountain climber, and he says, have you ever been in weather like this? He says, what weather? Oh, I grew up in weather like this. We grew up in weather like this. We are Christians. We have been sent into the world because God so loves the world that he still sends his son. And the church is the continuation of that redemptive mission. Now, in my first talk, I set the context for the manner of our participation in culture. Because remember, politics is a subset of culture. Polis, the city-state. I spoke of the requirement of being morally coherent, and those of you who are here, remember that phrase is particularly strong 
uh, and the church's teaching in this area. I began with two images out of the legacy of the great C.S. Lewis. Remember the screw tape letters? I mentioned, uh, as Lewis pointed out in his introduction to that brilliant uh, the screw tape. If you've never read the screw tape letters, it's well worth reading. He said there are two errors that people fall into about the devils. One is to be overly taken with them and see them everywhere, and the other is to act as if they don't exist. And Lewis said, the devil likes a materialist and a magician equally. And I said, in a certain sense, that's true of politics. There are two errors we can fall into. One is to be overly involved and think that somehow through political participation we're going to make this world perfect. We won't. That's utopianism. It leads to zealotry. It can lead to heresy. But the other is to retreat from it, to draw up the drawbridge. That's a problem as well. Remember, I also in that first talk mentioned uh, the abolition of man, Lewis's wonderful critical essay on the state of English education. Relativism was destroying English education from within. Sound familiar? And he talked about men with no chests and how he deployed men with no chest, men with no courage, men with no inner core. And I suggested that's our problem today. You know, we live in what Pope Benedict XVI, back when he was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, rightly called a dictatorship of relativism. And relativism is a philosophy that says there's no such thing as truth. Your truth is equal to my truth, is equal to your truth, so there's really no truth. And we need courageous men and women who stand up and say, there is truth, and it can be known to all men and women. And yes, as Christians, we believe it's fully revealed in Jesus Christ and is taught by the church, but it can be known through the exercise of reason in the natural law. And we need to be morally coherent we need to realize that in a certain sense at the basis of every political and economic issue there are always moral concerns and this notion of separating out the moral and the secular is not a Christian notion in the second talk I talked further on that subject living a unity of life and avoiding what the Second Vatican Council fathers called the greatest error of our age that separation between faith and life Remember I mentioned the 1972 film, The Godfather, and that scene that was so poignant, and many of you remember that movie, that scene when uh, Corleone, Michael Corleone is standing as godfather to uh, his sister's baby. And right as he is answering the questions from the priest, renouncing Satan, standing against evil, his minions are unleashing a reign of terror. They're around killing and slaughtering the leaders of, of rival gangs. And the scene just depicts that separation between faith and life, huh? Renouncing evil, but engaging in evil. We don't see it that blatantly in our age, but it is there. And in fact, perhaps the subtlety of it is more dangerous. In pulling both of these talks together, I hand it out, and it's still available on the back, two excerpts. One from Gaudium et Spes, Joy and Hope, which is a Second Vatican Council document on the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Paragraph 22, which tells us that it's only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man finds its meaning. A beautiful passage. 
that really unpacks the depth of the church's teaching on anthropology, theological anthropology. What happened in the incarnation? Jesus becoming like us so that we can become like him. And he took on the whole human condition. And we no longer can see the body as separated from the soul. In fact, we're an integrated human person and redemption works on the whole person. And then on the back I handed out a quote from an early letter in the church called the Letter to Diogenes, a second century letter. Uh, it's uh, written to a pagan inquirer to a Christian, and we're not exactly sure who. Some people think it's somebody named Metatus. But in his response to the questions of the pagan as to how Christians live in the world, and it's beautiful, he uses a particular line that as the soul is to the body, so are Christians to the world. As the soul is to the body, so are Christians to the world. You talk about a good apologetic for our role in the world. We are the soul of the world. We're meant to animate it, to raise it up, to change it, to give it life. It was interesting, and I should point this out, a gentleman came up afterwards because the translation that I handed out is the Vatican translation. And remember, the letter was written in Greek, and there's a particular line in there, and I won't take the time to look at it, that talks about the body hating the soul or militating against the soul. And this gentleman said, the body and the soul, you know, they're connected now. And I said, yes, and actually, in fact, Greek has different terminology, sarks, the flesh, the disordered passions. That's what it was referring to. Christians do not believe that the body is evil, although that matter was evil. Jesus was raised from the dead and is in a resurrected body, and we too shall be raised from the dead and in a resurrected body. Now, in bringing those two passages together, understanding anthropology, theological anthropology, who we are becoming in Christ, that he is redeeming everything about us, body, soul, and spirit, and missiology and ecclesiology, the role of the church, the mission of the church in the midst of the world. I was suggesting a parallelism here. Okay. And I want to just explain it a little bit more clearly in a few words. Just as there can be no disembodied spirituality worthy of the name Christian, because redemption involves the integrated human person, body, soul, and spirit, there can't be a disembodied understanding of the mission we have as members of the church, still called into the world, because God still loves the world. We cannot retreat from the culture. I like to think of our vocation as living in the heart of the church for the sake of the world. Remember the title of that pastoral constitution that I got the paragraph from, Gaudium et Spes. The church in the modern world. The church is in the world for a reason. And depending on our vocation, we play our role as members of the body of Christ in that world. And in a special way, lay men and women are called into what is often called the temporal order, and particularly the arena of politics. And so it's up to all of you to turn the situation around and not to retreat from it. It's a beautiful passage in the first letter of St. John, chapter 4. As he is, so are we in the world. As Jesus is, so are we in the world. We are in the world with a redemptive mission, a redemptive purpose. 
That's just a little review. Now tonight I want to talk about political participation. And remember, we're only scratching the surface. I really hope to unpack a lot of what I've begun to pull together to respond to the deacon's kind invitation in a book in the future. And I'm working on it. Remember, politics is a subset of the culture and the church cannot retreat from the culture. Work in the culture is a com critical component of the mission of the church. And of course, of the obvious reason, perhaps the most important reason, that we must stay involved in politics and in the civic order is to make sure that the church is free to proclaim her message in word and in deed in every nation and in every culture because that is her mission. She is to continue the redemptive work of her Lord, of her head, Jesus Christ. So we must use our citizenship and our access to the political order to protect the church in her mission, her saving mission. And this isn't new. Notice how St. Paul used his Roman citizenship to advance the preaching of the gospel. We must use our American citizenship to do the same, particularly in an American culture that is increasingly hostile toward the church and in a special way toward the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is not backing down from the truth about the dignity of every human person, about the primacy of marriage and the family and society founded upon it. So we cannot abandon our obligation, our duty, to defend her right to speak and to live. Now in chapter 2 of the section of the Catechism entitled Life in Christ, and by the way, not only is the deacon absolutely right, this has got to be in the hands of every Catholic and being read and studied and prayed through, something that we become completely conversant in, but this needs to be in our hands as well because it helps us to understand this great gift, the canon of the scripture, and to apply it as sons and daughters of the church. There has been a catechism from the first century on to teach us how to apply this. And there's so much in the catechism on participation. And it's in the section Life in Christ. We find a rich understanding of our vocation to live and to participate in human society. Because to live in Christ, which is what it means to be a member of his body, is to be where he is. You know, we're familiar with that story, and there's a tradition in the church that Peter was fleeing the city after the crucifixion, and he saw Jesus walking back in, and Jesus said, where are you going? Think about that in light of what we're talking about. The catechism is a place to dig into if we want to really begin to understand the principles of Catholic political participation. Read it. Look at the sources footnoted. Pray over the implications, and that's sections 877 and 1960. One of the things that the scripture teaches us, the church has taught us for 2,000 years, and the catechism breaks open for us to understand, is that by nature and grace, by nature and grace, we are social. We are made for relationship. We are called to community. Let me read a few sections from the catechism. 
And these sections are under a heading called The Person and Society, The Communal Character of the Human Vocation. I know it's a little lengthy, but bear with me. All men are called to the same end, God himself. There's a certain resemblance between the unity of the divine persons and the fraternity that men are to establish among themselves in truth and love. Love of neighbor is inseparable from love of God. The human person needs to live in society. Society is not for him an extraneous addition, but a requirement of his nature. We need to live in society. Now, this beautiful, beautiful teaching in the catechism and in the tradition, because we reflect the image of God himself, who is a Trinitarian communion, and we give ourselves away to others. But it's important for us to understand that as Catholics, we don't see society as something being added on that we just have to deal with. We see it as essential to being human. We were made social. Remember in the creation account, in the first three chapters of Genesis, after God makes everything, he says it is good, except for one place. He makes Adam, and he says it is not good. Not that Adam wasn't good, but it is not good for man to be alone. We are relational because we reflect the image of God. Catechism continues. Through the exchange with others, mutual service, and dialogue with his brethren, man develops his potential. He thus responds to his vocation. A society is a group of persons bound together organically by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. And I'll skip down. Each community is defined by its purpose and consequently obeys specific rules, but the human person is and ought to be the principle, the subject, and the end of all social institutions. Certain societies, such as the family and the state, correspond more directly to the nature of man, and they are necessary to him. It goes on to talk about voluntary associations and, I quote, political affairs. We are called into the political arena. God is not willed to reserve to himself all exercise of power. He entrusts to every creature the functions it's capable of performing according to the capacities of its own nature. This mode of governance ought to be followed in social life. The way God acts in governing the world, which bears witness to such great regard for human freedom, should inspire the wisdom of those who govern human communities. They should behave as ministers of divine providence. The principle of subsidiarity is opposed to all forms of collectivism. It sets limits for state intervention, aims at harmonizing relationships, and it goes on. But here's the important principle here. We are made by nature and grace to be social, to be in relationships, and we will not be fully human unless we are in those relationships. And God governs. God governs. And human government ought to reflect God's government. The way he acts in governing the world. So let me spend a couple of minutes now on what that means. Here's a principle for Catholics in political participation. We are not anti-government. We're not. We certainly may not like big government. I don't. And it violates that principle of subsidiarity more often than not. 
which is from a Latin word, subsiduum, or help. It's a principle, an ordering principle, that simply says government should take place at the smallest practicable level, beginning with the family and moving out from there. But we're not anti-government. Now, this is an important thing for us as Catholics as we work with other Christians and other people of goodwill in political activity. We do not believe that freedom is determined by the isolated individual making decisions for himself or herself. In fact, we believe, and we believe the scripture is clear on this, and the teaching of the church is clear on this, that to be fully human, we have to be in relationship. And so we begin with the family. We were made for love. And we are humanized in these relationships. Now, in response to a question that was asked after one of the earlier talks, I spoke of this Catholic vision of the human person and of good governance as a positive vision, and it is. We're not anti, we're pro. The pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, we ought to look at the world with hope. Now, we're not naive. We're not going to pretend that the world isn't a mess. It is. Okay, it is. But there's still a lot of good, and we can see the good with the eyes of faith and draw upon it and increase it by our participation. See, I don't like the use of the prefix anti, even in political activity. Notice how those who oppose our position on life want to call us anti-abortion. Well, we are anti-abortion, but what are we? We're pro-life. Just like I don't like post-Christian as a term to refer to Western culture. I prefer pre-Christian. Yes, it's neo-pagan, but it's on its way to conversion, if we have anything to do with it. You know, one of my heroes is St. Jose Maria Escriva, as many of you have picked up. And he put this positive vision so beautifully in a couple of quick paragraphs from one, the forge, and the other, the furrow. Your life, he wrote, your work should never be negative nor anti-anything. It is, it must be positive, optimistic, youthful, cheerful, and peaceful. In another place, the task for a Christian is to drown evil in an abundance of good. It's not a question of negative campaigns or being anti-anything. On the contrary, we should live positively, full of optimism, with youthfulness and joy and peace. We should be understanding with everybody, with the followers of Christ and with those who abandon him or do not know him at all. But understanding does not mean holding back or remaining indifferent, but being active. Now, how do you do that? By staying close to God. Without prayer, we're not going to have any good fruit in our political participation, period. Politics is a very cynical business. Believe me, I've been around it for a long time. And you get very negative. And in our own camp, there's a lot of negativity. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I'm asked about, why aren't the bishops doing more? Why are Catholics in public life apostates? Those are tough questions. They're legitimate. But I'd rather ask, what are we doing? And what are the Catholic lay faithful doing? You see, in a certain sense, there's always been struggles with leadership in the church. There just has been. There always has been. We're very fortunate, and notice when I write about bishops, and I do a lot, I always point out the really good and holy ones, because we're getting more and more of them. And we are, we're getting more and more of them. And pray for them. Can you imagine the struggle they face? 
But look at the courage they're beginning to show. I'd rather face and point out the ones who are showing that kind of courage than the ones who I don't think might be. And the same is true of fellow Catholics. Look, I'm not naive. Sadly, I know many Catholics in public life are basically apostate. They're not living the unity of life. But what I'd rather do is spend my energy getting Catholics who are to run for public office and to point out the ones who are. All right, so we're not anti-government. We reject the idea that the isolated individual is a measure of freedom. We're not libertarians, and I don't mean to offend any people who think they are, in the strictest sense of the political or philosophical term. We're Catholics. That's the noun. We're also not conservatives or liberals or neoliberals or neoconservatives or any of those permutations of the political labels. At least first. What we are is Catholics. We need an authentic understanding of the church's social thought to inform how we approach political issues and political participation. And we need to take back some of the beautiful language in the catechism, in the compendium of the social doctrine, and in the magisterial teaching on the social order from those who have co-opted it and stolen it. And here's another little pet peeve, as my mother says. Just because the, quote, left has taken a term doesn't mean we let them keep it. Let's take it back. Wonderful terms like common good. Read what the Catechism teaches about common good and the Scripture. Get a sense for what it really means. Even the very term social justice, oh, I know it's been co-opted, I know that, corroded. And I've had endless debates for years with people who I think very highly of who are trying to persuade me don't use it. And I say, no, I'm sorry, I will use it. I'll take it back. What does it really mean in the teaching of the church? Responsibility, participation, solidarity, the natural law. Just because the terms have been co-opted, I think part of the reason they were co-opted is because we didn't know what they meant and we weren't using them. So people took them and used them for their own ends. We have to recover them. Just a quick story. I remember many years ago in one of the several failed efforts, <laughs> and I've had several of them, at trying to organize Catholics for political participation. I was working with an organization and, and I thought we really needed to have four pillars. Life and family and freedom and solidarity. And I remember the experts telling me, solidarity? What are you talking about? Sounds like trade unionism. No, no, no. So they changed it. That was many years ago. Well, you know, they were wrong. Solidarity is a wonderful term. It's kind of interesting, even back then, I mean, there was, a, there was a trade union in Poland named Solidarity, led by a great hero named Lech Walesa, and we rejoiced when that union did a pretty great thing confronting leftist collectivism, right? So anyway, I, I, do, I have a C3 called Common Good and a C4 called Common Good, and the four pillars are life, family, freedom, and yes, solidarity. Solidarity. Okay. We are a brother and sister's keeper. Yes, we need to be careful on how we apply that through the principle of subsidiarity, but nonetheless, I think we need to take the term back. It is not a leftist term. It's a Catholic term. Now, I've quoted extensively in my talks from the Vatican's doctrinal note on the participation of Catholics in political life. 
And it begins with these words. The commitment of Christians in the world has found a variety of expressions in the course of the past 2,000 years. One such expression has been Christian involvement in political life. Christians, as one early church writer stated, play their full role as citizens. That early church writer was Diogenetus. Among the saints, the church venerates many men and women who serve God with their generous commitment to politics and government. Among these, St. Thomas More, who was proclaimed patron of statesmen and politicians, gave witness to his martyrdom by his martyrdom to the inalienable dignity of the human conscience. Though subjected to various forms of psychological pressure, St. Thomas More refused to compromise, never forsaking the constant fidelity to legitimate authority and institutions which distinguished him. He taught by his life and his death that, quote, man cannot be separated from God, nor politics from morality. Hear that? Man cannot be separated from God, nor politics from morality. That's why I used Thomas More last week and spent a good amount of time looking at his life in the context of the culture he was sent into. It is no accident that blessed John Paul II proclaimed him the patron of political participation, and of all lawyers and statesmen and anybody involved in public service. It's no accident. He was sending a signal. In a very special way, we need Thomas More's for this age. I know some of you were talking when I walked in about that picture of Justice Scalia in the Thomas More cap. I saw that in the, in the blog, yeah. God bless him. I thought of wearing a Thomas More cap today to make this point. We need Thomas More's. We need men and women who live a unity of life, who show moral coherence, and who are courageous. And it is the lay men and women of the church who must rise to the task. The doctrinal note reaffirmed that. All lay members of the faithful are called to participate in the political life of democratic societies. As a nation, we've lost our moral compass. And as a result, we're dangerously close to losing our freedom. The struggles we face today, yes, they're fiscal, and yes, they're social, but they're fundamentally moral. When a society fails to recognize that persons are more important than things, when it loses sight of the primacy of the dignity of every human life at every age and stage, it devolves into practical materialism. And it worships a golden calf. It uses the language of human rights, but it's lost its moral content. Now, another principle. In approaching the political order, we have to remember that there's a hierarchy of values and rights and principles to be applied. Just as in Catholic theology we speak of a hierarchy of truths, so there's a hierarchy of values and rights. In fact, in his Christmas message to Catholic politicians in Italy last year, Pope Benedict XVI reminded them of a hierarchy of values and a hierarchy of rights that applies in the political order. That's why I say, as I said last week, our position on the dignity of the human person from conception throughout all of life to natural death is not an issue. It's a lens through which we view every single issue. Tomorrow, I, along with hundreds of thousands, and maybe many of you, 
will observe the 40th anniversary of the horrid U.S. Supreme Court decisions in Roe and Doe. I'll be at the National Memorial with Father Frank Pavone in the morning and marching through the streets. And we will be sending a strong signal. We know what happened with those two decisions. The floodgates were opened and nearly 60 million of our neighbors have been killed. When there's no recognition of the preeminent right to life, there soon follows an erosion of the entire structure of human rights, all human rights. John Paul warned of this in his prophetic Evangelium Vitae, The Gospel of Life. Human rights don't exist in a vacuum. They're goods of the human person. And there's a hierarchy of those rights. And life is the first right, because without it, there are no other rights. And without the freedom to be born, there are no other freedoms. Without acknowledging the right to life, all derivative rights are placed in jeopardy. Failing to recognize that our first neighbors in the womb have a right to be born and live a full life with us in the human community is a foundational failure of our obligation and solidarity. And the entire ethic of being our brothers and sisters keeper. There can be no enduring or lasting solidarity in a culture that kills its own children and calls it a right. If anything reveals the moral crisis we face, this reality does. And the serious leadership crisis that has flown from it. In 1994, Mother Teresa put it all pretty clearly. And bear with me on this quote, please. It's well worth it. And this is Blessed Teresa. America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe v. Wade has deformed such a great nation. The so-called right to abortion has pitted mothers against their children and women against men. It's sown violence and discord at the heart of the most intimate human relationships. It has aggravated the derogation of the father's role in an increasingly fatherless society. It has portrayed the greatest of gifts, a child, as a competitor, an intrusion, and an inconvenience. It has nominally accorded mothers unfettered dominion over the independent lives of their physically dependent sons and daughters. And in granting this unconscionable power, it has exposed many women to unjust and selfish demands from their husbands or other sexual partners. Human rights are not a privilege conferred by government. They are every human being's entitlement by virtue of his humanity. The right to life does not depend and must not be declared to be contingent on the pleasure of anyone else, not even a parent or a sovereign. That was Mother Teresa. Those are pretty strong words. And not only that, they give us a wonderful example of how to develop an apologetic to defend our position about life as a solidarity issue as a social issue. That's why I read the entire quote. We cannot back down from the truth on life. And we won't, so we will march. And thank God we have heroes who will march with us. I, you know, I consider Father Frank Pavone to be one of the great heroes of this human rights movement. It would be my honor, I've known him for many years, to stand with him again tomorrow. And in addition to our position on life, our position on marriage, and I don't have time to go through it again, I went through it last week, is also rooted in the natural law. And we must defend it against those who oppose it. And make no mistake, that's what's going on. Marriage is under assault. 
marriage as between one man and one woman intended for life, open to life, forming the first society, the first church, the first government, the first economy, the first hospital, the first mediating structure. That marriage is marriage. Ontologically, that's what marriage is. And the wordsmiths who play games with our language are against marriage. True marriage has been inscribed by the divine architect into the order of the universe, and truth does not change. People and cultures do, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And all the issues related to that, you talk about children's rights. Children have a right to a mother and a father. And of course we should care about the single parent, and we do, and the many broken homes, and we do. However, their existence cannot change the norm necessary for building a stable and a healthy society. Intact marriages and families are the glue of a happy and a healthy social order. Natural law, another principle I've spoken of in these talks. Catholics among all Christians, to those to whom more is given, more will be required. Our entire natural law tradition is so desperately needed right now. We need to understand it, be able to articulate it, and offer it in the political arena. So many of our other Christian friends who we walk side by side with tomorrow don't have that tradition. And so well-intendedly, they'll stand up and they'll quote the Bible, and thank God they're quoting the Bible, but when you live in a culture that has rejected the authority of the Bible, that's why it's so important that we're able to articulate our positions by referring to the natural moral law. Morally based positions are not simply religious. And acknowledging the existence of a natural moral law is the ground upon which every great civilization has been built. It's also the source of every great human rights movement. We recently commemorated Dr. Martin Luther King, and rightly so, in the holiday that bears his name. He was an evangelical Protestant minister and a heroic champion of human rights. I mentioned last week his letter from a Birmingham jail. And I said, it's a great example of how to use the natural law. Let me just quote a little bit. And I know I'm pressed for time here, but this is worth it. This is Dr. King. There are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One is not only illegal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that's not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts the human person is just. Any law that degrades human people is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the person. Martin Luther King and the great movement that brought an end to legally sanctioned segregation rooted in the natural law. The natural moral law gives us the moral norms that we need in our work because the greatest challenge we face in this nation is a moral one. We need men and women running for political office and serving in political office and governing who are not afraid to say that.
Because when it's said properly, it strikes what's left of the conscience in those who hear the words. Now, I'm going to take my remaining few moments and share some personal political observations and opinions. And before I do, as a symbol and a sign, especially since I'm on camera, I'm removing my clerical collar. By making the following observations, I am not in any way endorsing any political party in the current American polity. I am not taking overt political positions. I am speaking as a private citizen, and I have a right to do that. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine says of political parties that they have the task of fostering widespread participation and making public responsibilities accessible to all. So let me share personally. I am currently a reluctant Republican. I left the Democratic Party many years ago after I became convinced that its leadership had been taken over by morally incoherent people who had formed a coalition that was bent on social and cultural engineering. However, I am concerned about some in the current leadership of the Republican Party retreating from defending the moral foundations of a free society. I do not believe that Western civilization and its collapse will be remedied by political movements alone. They're inadequate for the task. However, I do believe that political movements have a role. Now, I want to shake things up even more, since I'm going to talk personally and as a private citizen. Lest I be accused of being a, quote, political conservative, as you know, I'm certainly not a political liberal, at least in the current parlance, let me quote from Peter Morin. Anybody know who Peter Morin is? Co-founder with Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker Movement. A little book called Easy Essays. He was talking about, in his time, facing the corruption of the industrial age, the need to take the values derived from the Catholic vision and worldview and knead them into the loaf of contemporary culture through building a movement. And he wrote this, so that we can create a new society within the shell of the old with the philosophy of the new, which is not a new philosophy, but a very old philosophy, a philosophy so old that it looks new. I think that's what we need to do. And the philosophy is the classical Christian vision of the human person and the family and the social order. As I survey the current state of the Republican Party, I have decided that it is at a place similar to the crossroads it faced in the 1970s. In 1977, at the fourth annual Conservative Political Action Convention, a man named Ronald Reagan gave a speech in which he called for a new Republican Party. He asked, and I quote, whether the time has come to see it is possible to present a program of action based on political principle that can attract those interested in the so-called social issues and those interested in economic issues. In short, isn't it possible to combine the two major segments of contemporary American conservatism into one politically effective whole? I remember reading that speech in the early 80s. It was during that decade that I made my transition out of the Democratic Party. 
I have to say the last Democratic presidential candidate that I supported was the late former governor of Pennsylvania, not his son, the governor of Pennsylvania, Bob Casey. He was a heroic and a truly pro-life Democrat. And I think the last straw for me was when he was censored out of his speaking role at the 1992 Democratic Convention because of his defense of life. He wrote a marvelous book called Fight for Life, which I still have on my shelf, and it really should be read by anyone who wants to be exposed to a truly pro-life Democrat because I'm of the personal opinion they're becoming an endangered species. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm very impressed with Representative Dan Lipinski of Illinois, who co-chairs with Chris Smith, uh, the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus. He wrote some words I want to share with you in my remaining moments, and this is Governor Casey, a Democrat. It's hard to think of anything more foreign to the principles of the Democratic Party or the whole American experience than abortion. Far from being inclusive, it excludes an entire class of fellow human beings from our care and protection. It's the only constitutional right, quote-unquote, we're ashamed of. Avoiding the word abortion with contorted euphemisms like reproductive rights and termination and evacuation. Far from liberating women, abortions become a lucrative industry, exploiting young women beyond anything ever imagined. When pregnancy comes at a difficult time, which is the worthier response of society? To surround mother and child alike with protection and love, or to hold out the cold comfort of an abortion clinic? Where is America's true character to be seen? In an adoptive home or an abortion clinic? In which role is a woman more empowered, empowered, giving life or taking it? These are questions that rest uneasily on the conscience of today's Democratic Party because we have traded our principles for power. The fleeting power offered by loud and well-financed factions like NARAL and Planned Parenthood. We can choose to extend once again the mantle of protection to all members of the human family, including the unborn. We can choose to provide effective care to mothers and children. Wonderful words and a wonderful defense of life. To me and to many others my age, and I'm 58 in background, blue-collar Catholic, raised in Dorchester, Massachusetts, the censoring of Bob Casey was the last straw. And it was done specifically because he supported our first neighbors in the womb. It was Ronald Reagan, his views, his character, his courage, his manner, which drew me in to the Republican Party. And I'm a reluctant Republican. But at least he tried to build a morally coherent approach. If you haven't read Abortion and the Conscience of the Nation, it's a must read. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. You see, the idea that we can separate moral issues from fiscal issues is a serious error. There's a moral basis to every political concern and economic concern. I think we're at another crossroads in the party that I have chosen to participate in. And we need a new Republican party and new Republican candidates. Now, let me make it clear. I would welcome the same kind of effort taking place in the other major party in the United States, the Democratic Party. In fact, picture with me both major political parties in the United States with a bedrock commitment to the dignity of every human person from conception to natural death, to the primacy of marriage and the family and society founded upon it, a commitment to authentic human freedom, not just a freedom from, but a freedom for responsible living, a freedom that understands that it can only flourish when it chooses what is good and what is true, and a commitment to solidarity properly 
applied. Can you imagine? Then we could have a robust and healthy discussion on the size and role of government outside of the family, the role of mediating associations in government, the proper role of being a good neighbor internationally, the proper understanding of a free economy and what it really means, and so many other issues. That's what we need. It's going to take Catholics who are thinking Catholics and courageous Catholics and morally coherent Catholics who live a unity of life to begin the discussion that can make this happen. Our march tomorrow and the commitment it entails sets out our agenda as we seek to develop a properly understood approach to political participation as Catholics. Our march begins with, proceeds from, and respects the primacy of the human person. At the end of the Catechism, there's a great glossary. If you haven't turned to it, go to it. It's so good. And it defines human person this way. The human individual made in the image of God, not something but someone. A unity of spirit and matter, soul and body, capable of knowledge, self-possession and freedom, who can enter into communion with other persons and with God. The human person needs to live in society, which is a group of persons bound together organically by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. Isn't that powerful? That's the catechism. And that is just good political theory. That is a good start to our marching orders. We need to build a different kind of society. And the march tomorrow can be a sign and a symbol we need a movement, a new movement, that has to be grounded in prayer. And that's why it's so important and profound that tomorrow we begin in prayer. There will be liturgies everywhere, east and west, extraordinary form and ordinary form. There will be prayer services everywhere. I'll be at one with Father Frank at the Constitution Hall. Because we must stay steeped in prayer. This is difficult work. We need a movement that's authentically ecumenical, that recognizes we must march arm in arm with other Christians, other people of faith, and other people of goodwill. I think that the pro-life movement has shown us a silver lining in the dark cloud of the culture of death. We found one another. What we are doing tomorrow is exercising our God-given rights, God-given, like the free exercise of religion secured in the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. Not just the freedom to worship, but a freedom to leave our churches, our basilicas, and our meeting rooms and go into the polis, the city streets. That's what the free exercise of religion meant to the American founders. And that's what is threatened by things like the HHS mandate. And we're not only exercising or calling for a respect for the free exercise of religion, but our free speech rights. This notion that everything we say is religious and therefore needs to be kept out of the public square is not only a terrible misunderstanding of the so-called separation of church and state, it's virulently anti-Christian, particularly anti-Catholic. We cannot keep our positions inside of our churches. We are called to mix it up, to be leavened. In our freedom of association, we're gathering together in the nation's capital and we're petitioning for a redress of grievances. But after the march, we need to do more. We need to learn to govern. We need to run for office. 
We need to support men and women who will be faithful to the teaching of the church, articulate it, and offer it to a culture that is waiting to be reborn. We cannot sit on the sidelines. We cannot retreat from the culture. We have a duty to go into it. And I'm going to conclude, because I know my dear deacon friend is going to be doing this very soon, <laughs> with one of my favorite lines, a quote. Now, you may not like the guy who said it, okay? but it doesn't matter. It's a good quote. It's Teddy Roosevelt. And it's an excerpt from the speech Citizenship in a Republic, which he delivered at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1910. I first ran into it, not studying Teddy Roosevelt, but the first time I walked into a martial arts dojo, I love martial arts, I have for decades, and I study. And it sits on the wall of the dojo that I keep going back to. And here's the quote that I'll end with. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. May we go into the arena. God bless you all. Thank you very much, Deacon Keith. As usual, we'll have a, a short Q&A uh, after the talk here. Let me start with a little show and tell. Uh, as you all know, I highly recommend the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Catholic Church. Even though it's online, it's really worth having and highlighting and, of course, having a good catechism. I have to wear reading glasses. That's why I use the big one. But any catechism, just, I think, having the book itself. You say, oh, it's online. Listen, I live online, but I just don't think we take the same approach to documents online as we do to those documents that we can look at and we can hold. Of course, a good Bible. You were reading from the Revised Standard Version. It's the best translation. I love the Ignatius Bible. You really need to have a copy of the documents of the Council. Particularly, you should read the documents, Gaudium et Spes, Lumen Gentium, the document on the lay faithful, and we should have a copy of that. But what I did, and this is what I was getting to real quickly, people have asked me in the last three weeks I've been here, you know, you talk a lot about prayer and you talk about the fathers of the church. Where do you get all that stuff? Well, pray the hours. And maybe you all do. I mean, it's amazing over the years. You know, just the beautiful compilation in the Office of Readings from the patristic sources and, and from council documents. And when you pray them year after year after year, they get in you. And it's a wonderful thing. Um, have a good source to study once you've read the readings of the day. I've been for 30 years, literally, reading Father Fernandez in conversation with God. 30 years! And it's still fresh. You know, whatever works for you, but this one works for me. I always quote St. Escriva, well, the way the furrow and the forge, you can see it's tattered, they don't even make this little amoeba-like looking one. 
And then I mentioned last week, I think, when I was talking about some of the earlier um, patristic documents, that one of the great sources to have, and mine's fallen apart, is Olivier Clement's Roots of Christian Mysticism. Have it near your prayer chair or wherever you pray in the morning. Uh, it's just a great source because he's such a great teacher on the early fathers. He's probably mentioned Olivier Clement. If he hasn't, this is just a great source to have. So that's my show and tell for today. But you have to actually read them. Buying them is one thing. Who's got time to read nowadays, right, friends? What do you have to do in order to have time to read? No, you don't just turn off the television. You throw it out the window. All right, question and answer. Uh, how do you relate what you said about being in the world and, and politically with the movement that was very important in the history of the church of monasticism? Of monasticism? Monasticism. Well, well, I, sure, sure. That's a very good question. First of all, I think it's important to remember that the monastic movement was a lay movement. Okay? I mean, over time, of course, men were ordained to serve the community. But it was a response of people to draw closer to God. And in the early centuries, monasticism went out into the desert. But if you look in the West, in the Middle Ages, oftentimes the monasteries were right in the middle of the city. And they actually became the center, the place where students were educated, where trades were taught. They grew up into the academies. Okay? The monastic vocation is a special vocation. And, and it's, it's not the call of most lay men and women. If it is, that's a wonderful vocation. But it certainly supports the whole church. It gives the whole church its very structure and foundation through its intense life of prayer. So even though a monk who leaves the world withdraws from the world, the world never withdraws from him. I think it was Thomas Merton uh, who wrote in uh, his own testimony that the monk never leaves the world. Okay? He's praying for all of those who are in the world. So I would say, first of all, remember that the monastic movement in its inception was really a lay movement, and then it grew. It's a special resource. It's a prophetic movement. But then, too, remember that there are different types of monasticism. And Western monasticism, for example, the Benedictine movement, I don't think it's accidental that Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger chose Benedict. He had been praying in Subiaco before he was even called to the office of Peter. You know, and I think we can learn a lot from seeing how the Benedictine movement spread Christendom throughout Europe and how the monasteries became a great center. I love the monastic life. I tried living it for 21 months when I was a young man. Okay. So I think it's a great resource for the church, and it supports what laymen and women are called to do. Finally, and this is more than two minutes, but he's, he's distracted. If laymen and women can learn anything from monks, it's pray. Okay. This notion that somehow we can't pray for long periods of time is simply not true. You know, we celebrated today in the Western calendar of St. Francis de Sales and his introduction to the devout life. There's a beautiful quote in the Office of Readings on the call of all men and women to prayer. Uh, I think, frankly, what happens is when you increase your prayer time, you get more things done rather than less things done. Because what it demonstrates is you realize what time is. Time is a gift. Time is a creature. We live in the eternal, and there's always enough time. That's a quick response.
Deacon, you mentioned uh, Governor Casey and Lipinski. I was wondering if you could name a couple other current politicians who you see doing a good job of sticking to the non-negotiables. I love Chris applying Smith. Applying prudential. Okay. I think Congressman Chris Smith is a great guy. Um, I've admired him for a lot of years. You know, I'm speaking personally now. I'm not going to take the collar off again. He was so nervous when I did that. But I'm speaking personally. I have a friend who lives up here who I think is a great man. He tried to run for president. His name was Rick Santorum. I think he's a great guy. He's not in public life right now. But we have a number of them. We do. We have a number of them. So I don't want to get into more than that, but I do think we have them, especially because, you know, I don't want to be interpreted as endorsing particular candidates. We do have some morally coherent, faithful Catholics in public life. We have a lot who are not. We should pray for them and do what we can to help them repent and convert. But I'd rather spend my energy calling attention to the ones who are and then multiplying their numbers and supporting the ones who are. And by the way, they do have a support system. I, I could mention the number of names, I won't. But I will tell you that they're friends. Because like you and me, they know the need. Can you imagine trying to be in Congress and being a faithful Catholic? Can you imagine the incredible challenge? We have a message coming in from Kate in New York, and I'll just paraphrase her question slightly. During your presentation, you alluded to the fact that the troubles in the church are not unlike those seen in the past 2,000 years. However, our current problems seem different because they are found within the clergy, whereas in the past uh, it seemed to be outsiders that attacked the church. Is this a correct perception? Or? And what was her name? Kate from New York. Kate from New York, thanks for asking the question. But I think if you dig more deeply into church history, you'll see it's not accurate. That we have always had a problem in the clergy. We always have, and we've always had good clergy too. Okay. Uh, look, at the time of Francis is the first thing that pops into my head. I mean, what did he have to deal with? Right? The opposition that he often experienced came from within the ranks of the clergy. And since uh, my lawyer friend, Escriva, is always so quick to pop into my head, he has a, a line that he uses in, I think it's The Forge, which I love. He says, opposition from the good. It's the devil's business. Okay. A lot of times the greatest challenges we face, and I will say this as a member of the clergy, comes from our fellow clergy. But we need to love them, pray for them, and surround ourselves with those who are faithful. But really, my sister from New York, if you look at church history, what you'll find is that the opposition often comes from within. And I'll just add to that, it's one of the reasons why our history area of study at the Institute of Catholic Culture is so important to what we're doing, because it roots us in reality and acts as a stabilizer, so that we see these attacks coming and we realize this is nothing new. We're part of a bigger picture, and those attacks have come for 2,000 years. They come even longer than that, and here we are placed by God at this moment. We're not untimely born. We're chosen by God for this moment yeah. in history and for this attack so that we can stand shoulder to shoulder with the great men and women that have come before us to draw the sword of faith against the one who is attacking. And by knowing history well, we will not be destabilized and come into question about the faith, but will be strengthened by that fight. And since you added on, I'm going to add on. Go ahead. <laughs> we need to love all those who are in the clergy and pray for them and speak well of them. I avoid, like the plague, speaking ill, particularly of bishops. And I want to encourage you all to do the same. Pray for them. Pray for them. Show a, a respect in your language toward them. That's not being naive. Okay? We're sons and daughters of the church, and we love the church. 
And no matter what kind of situation the church, you know, here's an example. Look, it may be rather blunt, but, you know, when you grow up in Dorchester, sometimes you end up being blunt. If you found your mother on a bender after three days in an alley somewhere, still reeking of alcohol, you'd be pretty disappointed. But you'd pick her up, you'd clean her up, you'd love her, and she's still your mother. We need to love the church, and we need to love the clergy. The indefectibility of the church is not dependent upon her clergy. It's dependent upon her head, Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell have not prevailed. And we can trust the magisterium. Thank God for the magisterium. So there's a lot of circular, Catholic circular firing squads going on, particularly online. And I don't think they solve a whole lot of problems. I think they just drag us all down. Deacon, thank you very much for your series and talks. You, you've proposed, along with Holy Mother Church, St. Thomas More as being the example of an integral Catholic life and the political life. But even St. Thomas More, at a certain point, realized that his Catholic faith and the Catholic life no longer corresponded with her. He couldn't live it out properly and integrally with his political life and had to pull back. At what point uh, would you say in our culture, in our current climate, we have to follow Thomas More's example and pull back because the culture has been so I understand. That's a very tough one. I'd say asymmetry. It's not either or, it's both and. I have a very dear friend, I won't mention him because he may be watching, and he's a wonderful priest. And after this most recent election, he went through his own bout of depression, as I did. But he decided there's nothing that can be done nationally. It's time to just withdraw and to build small local communities. He's a good man. That's okay. I don't agree. I'm redoubling my effort. Is one right or one wrong? I think it's both and. But there will come a time, and this is where prudential judgment comes in in our own lives, where we'll know according to our state and life and vocation. I'm not a priest. I'm not a layman either. I'm a deacon. We kind of stand as a bridge from the ambo to the world and from the world back. At this point, I think there's still room in the American polity for us, and we still need to be engaged. And that was the purpose of these particular talks, to encourage us to stay in as leaven in the loaf, as yeast, I don't know what it's going to be like. We're headed into a tough year. I think this HHS battle, you know, your bishop, God bless him, said he's willing to stand up and, necess if necessary, go to jail. God bless him. Are we going to see some of our bishops in jail this year? We might. But even then, I'm not sure that's going to cause us to withdraw. I think that may inspire us to do even more. That might be what it's going to take to really turn the tide. So I don't know the answer to it. We really need to discern that according to our state and life. And I think at times there are different responses that people can make. The monastic response of pulling out or going more fully in. But in a particular way, the lay faithful are called into this arena of culture. Thank you very much, Thank Dean you. Keith. Thank you. I want to thank Deacon Keith for traveling for four hours and spending the night for three weeks in a row away from his family and his community. I really appreciate the sacrifice you've made for us and the gift of faith that you've given us. In conclusion then, Deacon Keith's been encouraging people to get involved. Our involvement does not have to be running for the presidency. It can be standing in a grocery line. 
It can be talking to somebody after church. God will put you there in that place, and he asks you to simply put your hands, your feet, your mouth, and your ears to work for him. And great things will be accomplished, greater things than running for the presidency of the United States. I will see you tomorrow. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.